Blog Talk Radio. You are listening to Help for HD Lives, the first podcast created for families living with Huntington's and juvenile Huntington's disease. Don't forget to find us on iTunes, Blog Talk, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also search over 500 archived episodes and other projects at helpforhd.org. To watch us in person, find Help for HD TV on YouTube and subscribe and ring the bell for notifications on new content. Help for HD Live is going on air in 5, 4, 3, 2, Hello, and thanks so much for tuning in to Help for HD Live. This show is made possible because of a grant from Teva Pharmaceuticals and the Griffin Foundation and Neurocrim Biosciences. I'm your host, Lauren Holder, and today I have two very special people on with me. Um, as I've been saying, we are going to be doing um, an HD Buzz roundtable monthly um, with the experts with HD Buzz. So today I have Rachel Harding on with me and Ed Wild. And we are um, just going to be going around talking about research today um, and really kind of delving into what was released at the HDSA convention and some things that you guys are really excited about um, because you guys did a panel, which was awesome. So I'd really kind of like to go back to that a little bit and just talk about the things that you're excited about. But thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's a great pleasure. So as always, the convention always gives us a lot of good information, a lot of good research that's coming out and some updates. And so let's start with that. Um, What specifically at the convention, um, what updates that were exciting did you guys give? So I think that the main thing that has changed Let's think about what's changed since we last met in person, right? Because it's been two years. This was it. It would have been three years uh, since the previous in-person convention, and during that time, we have had to cope with a lot, and most of it's been disappointing. So the 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 most famous thing, I guess, that happened was that the Rush Tominersen trial of a drug that was uh, designed to lower the production of mutant Huntington, the protein that causes HD in the human brain. Uh, that trial reported negatively a year ago, uh, March of, of 2021. And everyone was heartbroken. And I think that the fact that that happened, well, we were unable to meet in person and commiserate and hug in the way that we normally would, was made it even harder. Um, I, I think what has become clearer in that in the time that has elapsed since then which is 15 ish months now is that uh, a lot of the original concerns that that news might be the sort of the nail in the coffin for the concept of huntington lowering um, has proven not to be the case so i think that um for me one of the the, unquestionably the, the what's exciting now is how much the field of huntington lowering is alive and kicking even in spite of that setback and a, a similar but different setback in the wave program um, and that actually we are in very good shape proving positively the what what i've always said about science which is that it's cumulative in other words even if something is a setback in one line of inquiry 
everything else is moving on in the meantime. And every day we, we move a bit closer to the day when we can all celebrate. And so that right now, what's, what's really the, the two things that are kind of rocking the world that were, for which there were big updates at the convention is number one, a, a pill or a, 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 in fact, one pill and one syrup that you swallow and it lowers the production of the Huntington protein. That's the first category. And the second is the idea of gene therapies to uh, essentially permanently reduce the production of Huntington protein in the brain. Yeah, I would add on to what Ed's saying, just to kind of re-emphasize that there are so many really amazing kind of different scientific approaches that all these different companies are taking to lower Huntington as just, you know, just one of the strategies that is being pursued by all these different companies. Um, and that's kind of the best situation to be in where we've got all these different irons in the fire. We're going to see what all these amazing scientists are going to come up with. And we're not putting all our eggs in one basket. You know, we're trying as many different things as possible. And, you know, a lot of that is through the dedication of the researchers and the scientists and the clinicians, but also the patient community who, you know, willingly give up their time um, to participate in these trials and allow us to work out what is the best way to treat Huntington's disease. Yeah, I was super excited um, about the stuff, especially because we had a ton of um, pharmaceutical companies that we've not had before at convention, including Novartis, um, you know, who they seem to be really gung-ho about helping the community and trying to um, find ways to be involved. Um, can you guys explain their, do you know, specifically know their um, research, the Novartis re research? We do, yeah. Okay. Rachel. I mean, at the convention, you can look at the, vid the convention of the, the vid sorry, the video of the convention talk that we gave, uh, which I was involved in, Rachel and uh, others, um, which in which we use a Star Wars analogy to explain how these drugs work. But I let Rachel do the proper explanation. <laughs> and then if necessary, we can bring Star Wars into it. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're still, I would say, finessing our analogy for this type of drug. Um, so, yeah, always looking for some input on the best ways to explain this. But, um, yeah, so essentially the way that these drugs work, um, Novartis and actually PTC Therapeutics are very, very similar drugs. Um, and they basically work by targeting a message molecule. So we have the Huntington gene. All of us have this. And when the Huntington gene is switched on, it will make a message um, that tells the other machinery and um, uh, the cell, cellular machines in our body basically how to make the protein, the Huntington protein that we all know about. And it's what we're trying to get rid of with a lot of these drugs. But when that message is made, it has to be um, edited um, by a special kind of machinery called splicing machinery. Um, and basically what happens is the message gets chopped and changed and restitched together. And this happens to all the messages that our body makes for all the different genes that get switched on. And it's a very complicated process. Um, and basically what happens is that when you have the Branaplam is the drug from Novartis or PTC 518 from PTC Therapeutics, they change the way in which this editing process happens or this splicing process is what scientists call it. And so that's why they call these drugs splicing modulators. And basically, the way this happens is that they change the way that the message is edited um, 
in such a way that it triggers this response in the cell, uh, which tells the body to basically throw the message away and get rid of it. And instead of making the protein, you just chuck the message in the bin um, and then you just don't make the protein. And so that's the way that the Huntington protein levels are reduced um, by both of these drugs. No analogies in there just yet. So, so let me add something. This is just because I, I am curious and that's um, just how I work. Is there a downside to doing this? Maybe. We, yeah, Maybe. we need to do experiments <laughs> to find out, I think. Yeah. So there is, I mean, there's, a, there's always there's always a possibility of, of a downside. In fact, I would say with any drug of this kind, it's almost inevitable that there'll be a downside. And what do they say? You mustn't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. We know that doing nothing is bad, right? If we do nothing, people who have this genetic expansion will get Huntington's disease, and that's bad, and we want to stop it. Um, so what we really, as a starting point, right, here in 2022, what we need is a drug that does more good than harm, okay? So even if it's not perfect, people end up better than they would have been if we'd done nothing. Um, so that's just to kind of manage expectations. I don't think anyone, I mean, it's possible, but I don't think anyone expects that any, any of the drugs we're currently testing will be perfect. And that's how it works. You know, you, you, get, a, you get a foot in the door and then you, you improve on that. At the moment, we don't really have a foot in the door. We have maybe a foot on the driveway, but anyway, enough. <laughs> I'm going to stop the analogy there. Uh, so what's the potential downside? So, you know, all of these drugs, uh, so we think about on-target effects and off-target effects. And the perfect drug is one which hits its target and does good. And that's it. But, you know, and in that, in that situation, you have an on-target effect and it's all good. And you don't have any off-target effects. And so that's ideal. In reality, every drug will have on-target effects and off-target okay. effects that may be bad. And the question is, does the good on-target effects, the, the consequences of the drug hitting its intended target, do those outweigh the others? So let's think systematically. On-target down effects that could be downsized for these drugs. So that is, in other words, if this drug does what it's supposed to do and it alters the splicing of, of Huntington um, or the Huntington message, and that, re that results in there being less Huntington around, we expect that to be good, but could it also be bad? I think the answer is yes. And the most obvious way that that could be the case is that um, each of us has uh, two copies of the Huntington gene. And so almost everyone who has the HD expansion um, has an expanded copy and a non-expanded copy of that gene. The expanded copy produces the harmful protein. The non-expanded protein produces a perfectly well-behaved protein. And in fact, the expanded protein can do good stuff as well as bad stuff. So there's nuances all over the place here. But the, the main concern I would say about the on-target effects of these drugs is the possibility that lowering the non-expanded protein, the, you know, you might call it a healthy protein, um, lowering the production of that could end up uh, making it harder for neurons to survive. Um, we just don't know what, whether that is the case. And even if it is the case, again, we have to come back to the question of whether any harm that that does uh, outweighs the benefits of lowering the harmful protein. And the only way we can test that, we, obviously we can run these experiments in as many mice and 
and, and pigs and sheep and monkeys as we like, but the only way to know for sure is to test it for real in Huntington's disease patients. That's on-target side effects. The off-target side effects would be, well, is it, you know, is this drug doing stuff other than what it's supposed to do? In other words, and I think the main potential liability here would be um, these drugs, uh, by altering splicing of Huntington, they can also alter the splicing of other genes and messages in the brain. In fact, the Novartis drug, we know for sure that it does that because it was developed to alter the splicing of a different gene, a gene called SMN2, to treat a completely different disease called spinal muscular atrophy. And we're actually borrowing what the spinal muscular atrophy people would consider an off-target effect because it was discovered along the way that it lowers Huntington. Um, so the question will be, uh, to what extent can these drugs hit the target accurately? Uh, and if they are doing off-target stuff, what what's the potential downside of that? It might end up being completely inconsequential, makes no difference at all. And my suspicion is that actually, if we go in early enough into Huntington's disease patients, um, we won't need to lower Huntington by very much if we do it early and for a long period. And that what that could mean is that actually the brain then, we tip the balance in the brain where it's able to deal with the smaller amount of mutant or harmful protein that's being produced. And it's able to cope with the small changes that, that might be produced in other genes due to the off-target effect. So that's a kind of general overview. But the, the reality is we, we, you know, we, we have some awareness of what these drugs might do in terms of side effects. The, the Branaplam, the Novartis drug, has been tested in kids and was safe enough and well-tolerated enough. Um, it didn't make the cut against other drugs for spinal muscular atrophy, but that doesn't mean that it might not be helpful for Huntington's disease. Um, and the PTC518 drug has so far been tested in healthy control volunteers and we, we haven't seen um, any any sign of any um, anything we would consider a major issue uh, emerging. Yeah, Everything I would add to what Ed said is that it's important to remember that both of these drugs kind of what we perceive as a benefit is that you take them orally. So you take it either as a pill or as a syrup. And that means that it's affecting a huge, all these different parts of our body. So all these different organs, all these other different um, bits of tissue. Whereas a lot of the other drugs are only going to be in the brain or they're only going to be in the spinal fluid. And so what we don't know yet, it could be a benefit, but we, we have to do the experiment to know um, is lowering Huntington throughout the whole body a good thing for something that's a neurodegenerative disease like Huntington's. Um, and there's certainly people in the Novartis camp who think that this is going to be a good thing. And that because Huntington's is a systemic disease, although it's the brain that's the most affected. Um, so maybe it will be a benefit, but we have to be careful in understanding what that means long term for people, particularly if there are off target effects, like how that might affect specific tissues like our lungs or our kidneys, for example. But okay. I want to point out one thing that I really next time we do our show, I want to focus on. And it's that Huntington's is a systemic disease. And I think that People in the HD community don't know what that means. Um, so I definitely, when we do our next show, I want to explore that a little bit because I want people to understand that this is, yeah, we're not just dealing with the brain. It's affecting so much more than the brain. And so um, I just wanted to remember to say that before we did That's it. a great one for Jeff Carroll, actually, because he's, he's done oh, a lot awesome. of research uh, below the neck in awesome. uh, mice and others. Yeah, well, then we'll get him on here to do that because um, I don't, people just don't realize that they do mm. not realize it is truly systemic. 
Um, yeah. Anyway, go ahead, Ed. You were going to say something. Yeah, I wanted to just something Rachel said about we have to run the experiment reminded me about a general principle of, of clinical trials and drug trials that may not be obvious. And, you know, I think if there's a perfectly understandable uh, impulse to want to be in a trial um, because people are developing a drug and if that drug works, it could be huge. And if you are in the trial and the drug works, you will end up getting that drug and having the benefits of that drug potentially several years before everyone else. And that's true and it's great. And I don't want to discourage people from having that impulse. I think it's perfectly natural. However, what we do need to keep going back to, and the past year has really reminded us that this is not theoretical, is that if we knew that the drug was going to work, we wouldn't need to run clinical trials. Um, what happens when you know a drug works is you, the, the drug gets licensed and everybody takes it. And actually, the Tom and Nursen experience with the Rush drug, if we play that through, we could have pushed for the FDA to license that drug in 2017 on the basis that it lowered Huntington, and that's the cause of Huntington's disease. But if we had done that, there'd be hundreds of thousands of people taking that drug across the world, and it would have done a lot more harm than good. And one saving grace of the fact that the uh, Tom and Nursen program ended the way that it did is that it happened within the controlled context of a clinical trial where people were being really closely monitored and that everyone was able to stop the dosing as soon as it was realized that the trial was heading in the wrong direction. The point of these trials is that they exist to test uh, whether the drug is harmful or neutral or beneficial. And it could be any of those three. If we, if we think it's going to be neutral or beneficial, we don't need to run the trial. Um, so, and when you sign the consent form, there's a, there's a lot of enthusiasm and excitement um, but it's really important to take part in that conversation and acknowledge that some of these risks that we're talking about are very real. This could accelerate your Huntington's disease. You could end up worse, permanently worse than you would have been if you hadn't taken part in the trial. And the, the principal reason for taking part in these trials is not to get the drug for yourself. It should be to test the drug on behalf of the human race. Um, I'm not saying that people haven't had that motivation. But I think it's really it's really important to restate that that however excited we are, and we are, um, and however much work is done before the drug reaches patients, uh, we run trials because we simply don't know whether the drugs will be beneficial or harmful. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. Um, I also think that, you know, as you guys have mentioned, um, the earlier that we get something in there, the better, right? Because the, the Huntington protein is already lowered or the brain is better able to adapt. Um, you mentioned the, the tipping point um, mm. of that, of this balancing act, which is what it is. And yeah. um, basically when your brain gets to a point where it can no longer compensate to the point it needs, I mean, it's just not much you can do, but our brain is this amazing thing that compensates and adapts every single day to stuff. And so um, it does the same in the early part of HD and in that prodromal stage. So um, this is why it's so important to get things in earlier. Um, but as somebody who's pre-symptomatic prodromal and, and you're looking, if, if you've been listening, you know, we're, we're going to the FDA and doing a listening session and we're wanting to take on that risk. And it is a risk, right? Because as you just mentioned, we could get worse. Hmm. And so we have to decide how much risk 
how much risk are we willing to take on? And it's the same thing for every person who participates in a clinical trial. It's a risk. It's a risk that it won't work. And um, different people have a different perception of risk. Some people, some people would be perfectly happy to die uh, if it gives us a piece of information that protects the future for their children. Other people don't want to do any trial that involves a blood test, you know, so so perception of risk is different uh, for everyone. But I think you're completely right that one of the things that we learned from the Tom Anderson program is that going earlier is probably better. We don't know it for sure, but it seems extremely likely to be the case. And I always like to think of that as being like, if you're going on a hike and you have a backpack full of bricks, uh, it's going to be hard and you might, you might not get to where you would like to get. Um, and so at any time, removing any of those bricks is good, but earlier in the journey is better. So we, we want to do two things. We want to remove as many of the bricks as possible, and we want to do it as early as possible in the journey, because those are both things that will contribute to people being able to go further. And I don't want to give the impression that the only message from the Tommy Nursing program was that later in the disease is too late. I don't think we know that. I, I think that there is every reason to believe that something that works in early or, or prodromal, man, uh, prodromal Huntington's disease uh, could well have a beneficial effect later in the disease. But we, we haven't been able to show that because multiple things went wrong in that trial. And I think the main thing that went wrong was that the dose of drug was too high and too much of that drug was given too early. Um, which meant that it wasn't ideal for anyone's brain who got those higher doses. Um, And the people who did somewhat better tended to be the younger people and the people earlier in the disease. But that really is a signal that they were resisting the the effect of too much drug rather than any suggestion that there's some point where it's absolutely too late for any drug to be beneficial. So I think that's a subtle point. And Roche, the sponsor of that trial, is is in launching another program with two different with two changes the first is that it yes they're going earlier in the disease the second is that and i think probably the most important is that the dose of drug is going to be reduced in every patient taking that drug so and if that lower dose works in those early patients i would hope and expect that they would then go back into later disease and see whether the lower dose can be beneficial there too exactly this is what i was going to say is we have to be quite careful in um are thinking on this because this is all still very hypothesis driven so these are just ideas that scientists and clinicians have about trying to fit the data to um, some kind of model of what we think is happening but we don't actually know these things for sure and the data from Roche that suggests that the, the younger folks with less severe forms of Huntington's disease are doing better is all done in something called a post hoc analysis which is means it's analysis that the trial wasn't designed to do and so it's you know not necessarily supported by all the statistics and all the controls that we would really really want to have to be absolutely sure of that kind of finding and so that's why this another trial for Tom and Erson is so important because we need to be able to show that that is really the case and it's uh, something that we can look to and just to say that you know it could be that there are some drugs that will work well in younger people but there may well be drugs we haven't even thought of yet that could be good for people later on in disease as well so you know a number of the things that are being tested now like we didn't even think would be possible so you know taking a syrup that would lower huntington levels throughout the whole body no one had thought of that you know like five ten years ago so in five to ten years time who knows like what things will be available and you know we have to just stay hopeful and 
trust in the process that science is always making new discoveries and use them to our advantage. Well, and I just want to bring up one point because, um, yes, I was talking about prodromal and presymptomatic, and I, I don't want to discredit anybody who is diagnosed or, you know, in mid-stages or anything like that. I think this idea, this is just a personal opinion. This is not anything but that. I think the idea that um, that we participate in clinical trials um, is not for ourselves is not true. I think we do it as a way to cope with a disease. I think it is a way to um, to you know to make things better for others. Yes, and and to further the research for that purpose. But don't you know? Certainly, if you are if you are symptomatic or, or mid stages or advanced stages or whatever, what, whatever part of HD you're living, it's important to do it for yourself as well, because um, it's very rewarding to be able to be part of something that is furthering the research. And as Rachel just mentioned, things are coming up all the time. And when you're looking at something that's even five to 10 years away, which may seem like a long time right now, it really isn't. Um, and so that doesn't mean that there won't be something for somebody. Um, so participating in research, getting involved now, um, giving as much information as you can, for example, picnic health. Um, if you can't participate in a, in a clinical trial, you can do something like research with picnic health or in an observational study. These are all important to lead to eventually having what we need. So. I don't want to discredit anybody in the HD community. Um, trust me, I live this every single day um, and I get it. Um, and I just, I don't want people to feel like if they're doing this for themselves, that's wrong. Because no, no, not at all. Not at all. That, and, and certainly the hope that the person might benefit physically is perfectly valid and is one reason among others, as long as that person is aware of the potential risk and what that might actually be like for them. But exactly. certainly that, that, the 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 empowerment and the sense of satisfaction and positivity that comes from being altruistic right doing something taking part in a trial standing and fighting against an enemy that you've previously only been able to run away from that is huge and yeah. that i think has been a nearly universal uh, experience for me even people who have been in trials and had things that went the way that we didn't want they generally come out of it uh, extremely pleased that they took part um, and uh, glad to have been able to give that gift uh, to others as well as the as well as a sense of empowerment and purpose that they got from from taking part. It really is uh, not something that's that needs that should be minimised. Agreed. Absolutely. On the subject of going earlier in the disease, though, which I think is is I think the other probably the other main theme that came from the convention for me. Um, yes, we need to lobby the FDA, and it's great that you guys are doing that. It's also something that scientists and, and researchers are doing in a in a very kind of systematic way through this organization called the Critical Path Institute, which has a, a working group focused on Huntington's disease, which has now for several years been basically trying to, uh, and that's a direct line to the FDA that's open essentially uh, constantly. Uh, and that's that that group has been working on a number of fronts to get to do things like get the biomarkers, the, the, the blood and brain measurements and see it spinal fluid measurements get those 
approved and recognized by the FDA, um, and also things like uh, redefining the descriptions of the disease, which we probably haven't got time to go into, but maybe the, the international um, staging system, the ISS, might be something we could talk about in the future. Oh, yeah. um, but that that very much is a conversation that's ongoing, and, and the FDA has has shown willingness across neurodegenerative disease to make to make uh, to change its its view and and to really do what the patients and families want to do in order to in order to make these things a reality. One of the great things about the, the um, uh, PTC trial in particular, which is one of the oral Huntington lowering pills, is that that is actually going into uh, prodromal Huntington's disease, what we what we currently call prodromal Huntington's disease. In other words, that's a that's a trial for people that haven't yet been diagnosed with formal onset of HD. And uh, to my knowledge, that's really the first of these um, uh, drugs targeting the mechanism of HD that is being tested in something like a preventative um, setting. And that's happening without any movement from the FDA. That's happening simply because the science and the community of scientists and patients together said, this is the patient group in which it's most likely to be beneficial. We, we now do believe that we can measure benefits or harms of the drug in that population using the scientific progress in biomarkers that we've made over the past decade. And what's more, uh, this is a huge, enthusiastic, untapped population. So the, the, the other upside is that it should make your trial easier to recruit. So um, th I think that's a really encouraging sign. And I would expect um, whether or not the FDA changes its position formally in terms of licensing drugs, certainly these early stage trials are already very well positioned to be going into the, the field of preventing or delaying onset of HD. So let me ask you this too, because you just brought on a, a really good point of the prodromal and what that means and the onset diagnosis. What is, what is being diagnosed with HD? So it, it, tradition, there is a traditional sense that someone has Huntington's disease uh, when a neurologist says, you know, when a neurologist examines them and they, move, they look at their eye movements and they get them to stick their tongue out and they walk along the tightrope and all of that stuff. And then at the end of it, the neurologist sits the patient down and says, you now have Huntington's disease, right? And it's as if when they got out of bed that morning, they didn't have Huntington's disease. And when they leave, then when they get the bus home, they from then on they have it and you know that's that kind of historically that comes from when we didn't have a genetic test and so we but we knew that someone was from a family that had hd in it and so all we could do was make that diagnosis clinically i say we it was people older than me uh would make that diagnosis clinically um uh, when the genetic test came out that sort of changed everything because actually we, we can predict and if someone has the test we can, and the test shows an expanded gene, we know that that will produce Huntington's disease at some point. And so instead of a sort of 50-50, uh, you, you either might, will get Huntington's or not, it becomes a case of when will it happen in you and uh, how, um, how, how different from how you used to be do you have to be for us to say that you have Huntington's disease. But we, we retained that concept that you either did or didn't have Huntington's disease. And then I think one of the things that changed during the time I've been involved, and it's certainly something I've been advocating for, is a recognition that that's not right either. That, um, you know, increasingly we know that this gene and the mutation exert effects from the moment the egg meets the sperm. The sperm meets the egg. They meet. From that moment, this protein is being produced, and it probably makes some, it probably makes embryos uh, develop in a slightly different way, although that 
in most cases doesn't seem to translate to people behaving or being any different in young adult life. And then at some point that they still, you know, it still becomes obvious that they have the clear features of Huntington's disease, but throughout life, that gene is having its effects. And so one of the things that was sort of gradually introduced was this concept of prodromal HD, where you're not how you used to be, but you're not bad enough to say, or your symptoms aren't severe enough to say, this is obviously Huntington's disease. And actually, in most cases, those are the, the, the doubt has arisen because it wasn't because some of the features of early HD are very nonspecific, like anxiety, depression, irritability, uh, poor concentration. And, you know, as, as we know, having lived through a pandemic, those are things that are quite common in the world and as people get older. So um, a big thing has. But actually, when we look in the rearview mirror, those things coming along at the same time in someone with a, with an expanded HD gene, Five or 10 years later, we look back and patients almost always write that those actually were the first signs that they were developing Huntington's disease. So um, really, so we went from a sort of, you don't have HD, you do, so binary two, two bin concept. We adding a bin in the middle, this prodromal thing, 10, 15 years where you're a bit not as you were, but you're not unwell enough to call it HD yet. That was progress. I think the reality undeniably is that this is all a continuum right so this is this is stuff that builds up in the brain gradually and if we if we need to divide it into stages it's because our measurement tools aren't accurate enough to recognize that this is a spectrum rather than a series of uh, separate stages okay and i want to point that out too this is a spectrum not a light switch yeah agreed it's perfect yes <laughs> But I think that's another thing in the community, and I know we'll we'll break like we'll stop after this. But I think that's another thing we've constantly thought of in the community is a light switch. It's a light switch, right? Light switch. Yay! Um, can't speak. Um, it's a light switch where on off, and it doesn't work that way. It's more like a dimmer switch. And so I love that. I love that you just said that and you said it's a spectrum because that's, that's another thing in the community. It's those HD Mythbusters, right? Like I had this mm. whole show on HD Mythbusters and I think that's huge to say because um, this thinking of a light switch needs to go away because if we, if we look at it differently, we can, we can manage it differently um, yeah. and get more resources earlier. So anyway, I love that. Thank you for saying that. Um, I'm going to add that I think Ed brought on a really important point, which is, you know, science is annoyingly and frustratingly slow, and it's taken us a while to work out what things we should be measuring in people to see these much earlier stages of the disease. So um, that's why things like the HD um, young adult study was really important, because you're starting to see changes in people who are many like years, if not decades, off exhibiting symptoms that we would traditionally measure in the clinic, but we need to look at those people to work out what we can measure and what we can measure accurately as well. Um, and try and find those like what we call biomarkers to see that very early stages of the disease. But, you know, it's taken all this time to really start doing those um, observational studies in these much younger people. There's been a more traditional focus on people in the later stages, which is, you know, completely understandable. That's where people want to be treating. Um, but I think we're going to see a big shift in that in the next sort of 10 years or so, which is exciting. Very exciting. Very exciting. I'm, I'm excited. I'm super excited. 
very grateful that you both came on um, to talk today. Um, we will be doing these shows every month. And um, one of the things I'd like to do is actually submit questions to the community and be able to bring them on at some point. Um, so everybody can kind of look forward to that, as well as I think talking about how HD is systemic. I definitely want to talk about that. Mm. But yes, we're going to be doing these monthly. I think they're super helpful to hear um, about these things. And I appreciate you guys so much. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much, Lauren. For those who don't know, which if you don't know, um, I'm sorry, you should have known a lot sooner. HD Buzz has a ton of information that we as the community can understand. Um, they specifically go through research and break it down for us in a way that we can understand so we know what's going on. They're keeping us informed. And it has been so far the best way to get information in the community. Um, so for those listening, please make sure that you check out their website. Um, they also have a really cool Twitter feed that I love to follow. Um, so if you're on Twitter, you can follow there. And I, do you guys have a Facebook too? Yep, yeah. we have a Facebook. We don't have a TikTok and we never will. <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> I don't blame you. That's okay. Um, I'm, I still can't figure out TikTok. Anyway. Um, Facebook too, but hdbuzz.net for the website. Um, so definitely check it out if you haven't. I, I get the monthly emails and then I go in there and I go, oh, there's new stuff. So, um, and then I check the Twitter feed all the time. So definitely check them out and make sure that you're tuning in monthly for these shows and send me your questions. You can do that on Facebook, Twitter, um, via my email, lauren at help4hd.org. Um, however you want to get it to me, um, you can send it through London on our TikTok because Help for HD does have a TikTok. Um, so you can send it any of those ways. We certainly want to hear your questions so we can get them to the experts here and they will certainly um, provide feedback for you. Um, until next time, love you guys and take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit www.help4hd.org and sign up for our email newsletter to stay up to date on all that is going on at Help for HD. Get social with us and like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe to Help for HD TV on YouTube and ring the bell for notifications.